Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. I'd really like you to keep that open for the duration of the message because we're going to jump back and forth in that particular text. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, we're glad you're with us this morning. My name's Mark. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. And uh, we're in a series called Actors. We're heading toward the conclusion. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the stories of people's lives who have been changed by the Holy Spirit and what the impact of the Holy Spirit has meant to their uh, transition or transformation into being fully developed and useful disciples of Jesus. And one of the core values that we've talked about in this series is that the power that you see displayed in the lives of people like Peter and John Mark and Lydia and the Apostle Paul, the same power that was available to them in the book of Acts is available to you and I today. Without hesitation or reservation, everything that God had given them in the Holy Spirit is available to us and the way you and I choose to live our lives. Uh, Today's story, though, is a little bit unique to the stories that we've covered in the lives of people in the book of Acts. The actors that we've talked about, for the most part, had great success. Today's story doesn't quite end that way. Uh, It's a story found in Acts chapter 5, and I need to give you some background. I'm going to say something very profound today, so you may want to write this down. Acts chapter 5 comes after Acts chapter 4. So you want to ponder that a little bit here today. That's deep. Because if you want to understand what's said in Acts chapter 5, we have to know what took place in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. So we know that Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts 1. The church begins on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when Peter preaches that great message of who Jesus Christ is and what he offers us. The church then takes off. And there's some persecution from the outside. Peter and John are told not to preach and they they defy those authorities and say, we're going to preach Jesus. And the church comes together and there's this uh, selling off of materials. There's great unity. People are sharing what they have and they're giving it to those who have need. And there's this great moment of unity as we end Acts chapter 4 and then we get to Acts chapter 5. I'd like to read the first 11 verses. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Let's stop there for a moment. Are you grateful I'm preaching this after offering or not? Okay, just curious. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church 
and all who heard about these events. Wow. It's not a happy text, is it? This is something that significantly happened in the church. And why would Luke record this? Chapters 2, 3, and 4 is this great moment of unity. The church is coming together. People are sacrificing for one another. They're gathering around the word of God. They're growing together. And God is changing lives. And then you have Acts chapter 5, and you have this moment where you have this, this incident takes place where people died in church. Here's what I want you to understand about why Luke would record Acts chapter 5. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel is when sin is allowed to live within the body of Christ. I want you to think about that with me. The greatest hindrance to the gospel is when the people of God don't take sin seriously. Because if we don't take it seriously, how in the world will the world understand the severity of it? If the church ignores it, if deception and the misuse of God's holy things is acceptable in the church, then how are we any different than anybody else? So let's pause. Everybody take a breath. This isn't a shame message. This isn't about raising money. This is about raising faith. This is about understanding why Luke would tell us this story and what happened within the church when sin was brought into the church. God wasn't going to play around. And God still doesn't play around with sin. Acts chapter 5 is a caution to make that point clear. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take the story of Ananias and Sapphira and I'd like to ask you a set of three questions. That's what we're going to do this morning. Some questions that are challenged to each one of us. I'm going to pose them to myself and I'm going to pose them to you. I would ask that you answer for yourself and I'll answer for my own self. And by doing so, we'll understand what we can take from Acts chapter 5 as we play our role in the story that God is writing to redeem all of mankind. The first question is actually two set against one another. Do I value my spiritual appearance more than I value my spiritual authenticity? In other words, am I more concerned about what people think of me than I am about what I actually am? And it's one of the questions that Ananias and Sapphira are faced with. You see, let's just clear the air. They did not have to sell the property and they did not have to give the money to the church. It was not required of them. But they chose to do part of it and the reason they chose to do part of it is the reason they got themselves in trouble. He wasn't required to sell the property. He wasn't required to give a dime of it. If you remember reading, Peter's response to him was, you didn't have to do any of this, so why did you choose to lie? Why did you choose to present yourself as sacrificing when there actually was no sacrifice involved? I want you to look at verse 2 with me again. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. They agreed on this. This wasn't an accident. He didn't sell it for $1,000 and only give 800 because he left some money at home. They actually said, we're going to sell it for this, but we're only going to give this amount, and we're going to let people believe that we gave it all. I'm told that the Greek words for kept back are actually would be the English equivalents of embezzled. They stated that this was God's, and yet they kept it for himself, which is what Dana was alluding to a few moments ago as she prepared our hearts to make our sacrifices, that we live with a God who is willing to share with us everything and only asks that we help by giving from our everything to those who have nothing. You see, there are a couple of things present in this text that are worth talking about. Ananias' sin was not that he didn't give all the money. 
Ananias' sin was, why didn't he give all the money? You see, there's two options here. There was spiritual appearance. There was the opportunity for people to believe that that they were spiritual. And let's go back to Acts chapter 4 to show you that if you understand Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5 makes a lot more sense. It says at the end of that, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, if you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about his role in this story. He sold a field and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. He sold it, he, he saw a need, he, he saw the need, he reacted to the need, and he met the need. He took and said, I don't need this field. If others don't have anything, I'm going to take from my surplus and make sure that they have enough. And he gave that money and he gave it all. And it became known. And people began to buzz about this. Barnabas is remembered because he was generous. And the generosity caused this wave. And people began to talk. And so Ananias and Sapphira said, let's do a Barnabas. Let's sell some property we have and we'll give the money to the church. But when they got the money, the draw of the money was more important than their commitment. So let me pause. Let me give a bit of a social commentary. And I need to be clear up front. I'm not saying this because I'm shooting from the bushes and sniping at individuals in this church. I love our church. I love what God's allowing us to be a part of. I know it has nothing to do with us, actually. It has more to do with him. But I love the grace that he's given us as a church. So I'm not, I don't have an undercurrent uh, or I, I don't have this agenda I'm trying to meet. This isn't about money. But it's really easy in this church, a church this size, for Ananias and Sapphira to survive. Because you could come in each and every week in the midst of other people worshiping and never actually participate yourself. You'll get credit for coming to church. You'll get credit for getting up on a Sunday morning and making your way here. And people will see you in the hallway and they'll make assumptions that you must be a believer and you must be committed to the kingdom because you go to church. And only in America do we, do we make it equivalent that attending church is being a believer. I want to caution us today. Jesus Christ is worth everything we have. And if worship costs you nothing, it's not worship. Boy, that's a terrible thing for a preacher to say if I want you to come back. But here's what I've learned in 30 years of doing this. You're attending here on Sunday morning will only be helpful if you're attending to God every other day. And so it's not about church attendance. It's not about how big we get. It's about whether or not we open ourselves to the same Holy Spirit that changed the world. And it'd be really easy to continue being about church appearance instead of about being spiritually authentic. In Acts chapter 4, verse 37, it said he sold a field and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. We see this throughout Barnabas' life. He was generous. He helped plant churches. He gave up his own personal comfort to make sure churches were planted in communities all around the world. He vouched for Paul. And he put his name and his reputation on the line and even his life on the hands of a man who had killed Christians. Barnabas was willing to support and encourage Paul and his apostleship began because of Barnabas' willingness to stand up for him. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be Barnabas. But Ananias and Sapphira chose in themselves to simulate holiness rather than to sacrifice for it. And so the challenge of this text for me individually, and I believe for every one of you that's willing to listen to me today, is it is, it is really simple to make people believe we're connected to Jesus. It takes sacrifice to actually be connected to Jesus. 
And that sacrifice will happen at cost. And it will, it will mean saying no to lesser things so we can say yes to greater things. So are you just working really hard on being spiritual looking or actually growing deeper in your walk with the Lord? The second question I want to ask us is, do we have a genuine fear of God? This has always troubled me as a kid. How does the fear of God and the love of God balance? Should the church be a a place where we're afraid of God? Should it be a place where every move is, oh no, he's going to hate me. Oh no, he's going to strike me dead. Well, that's what I would think when I was young and I didn't understand the biblical concept of fear. But I want you to know that fear is in the church if it's the Lord's church. Here's why. Because when God shows up, it'll mess you up. Are you with me, church? When the real God, when Jesus Christ showed up anywhere in the scripture, people noticed he wasn't like us. They noticed he had a little more power, a little more authority, that he was the man. And when you realize that Jesus is the man, you'll realize you're not. When you realize Jesus is all that, you'll realize you're not close. And so when, when God shows up, it messes us up. Find anywhere in scripture that God revealed himself on earth and you'll find someone sweating on the ground, their face in the dirt, hoping he would go away. And when the church becomes so casual that God's just the big old man in the sky, may we be forgiven for misunderstanding actually who he is. Acts chapter 5, verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. (laughs) I love, I'm just going to say it. There are parts of scripture that don't need to be written, and they're written. Verse 5, look at this. He fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happened. Really? Think about that. Hey, did you hear what happened at Christ Church Arnoga today? No. Some dude tried to put a $5 bill in the offering plate. He dropped dead. You think that'd be known? You think there'd be some people showing up next week and some people not showing up anymore? Absolutely. But there'd be a little bit of fear. Be careful what you put in those baskets. I don't know what they're made of, but God will get you. So there was great fear. Verses 10 and 11. Young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I could probably have figured that out on my own. It goes back to Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. That word awe is the word fear. It's the same word. Can fear be a part of the church? Absolutely. But we're not talking about a deep respect between two equals. The word fear in the Bible means reverence, respect, awe. I know who he is, and when I know who God is, I'm clearly defined as not God. And I don't mean not even close. I mean, I look and go, yeah, he's got to be at all because I'm nothing. And that balance of fear is what the word fear means in the scriptures. There's a moment that Jesus is on the water and a great storm comes up and it says the disciples were afraid. Jesus wakes up from his nap. He's grumpy like I am and he says, be still. And it doesn't say that the waters eventually calmed. They immediately went from this boiling storm on the Sea of Galilee to an absolutely calm lake instantaneously. And it says, and the disciples were afraid. They were scared of the storm. They were shaken to their souls at who he was. He raises someone from the dead. He said they were scared. They were fearful. The fear of the Lord came upon them. 
When we know who God is, it'll remind us who we're not. So let me give you a definition of fear that'll appear on the screen. Fear is the reaction to seeing the worth, the power, and the might of Christ. I want you to stare at that for a moment and process that with me. To see the worth, the power, and the might of Christ. When we pay attention to that, when we know who he is and we know who we're not, is it hard to have fear and love at the same time? Absolutely not. It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when we know who God is, then we can learn to trust him. So what are we to fear? Well, we're to fear deception. This is what the story of Ananias and Sapphira is all about. They attempted to deceive. In verses 3 and 4, Peter asks them questions. In verse 3, if you look in your scriptures, it says, why have you filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In verse 4, he says, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. Remember, they were trying to impress men with this gift. Everyone would go, wow, they did a Barnabas. But they didn't do a Barnabas because Barnabas gave it all. They only gave a part of it, hoping people would think they gave it all. And he said, when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you not only lied to men, you've lied to God. And I want you to notice something significant here for this series. Peter equates lying to the Holy Spirit as lying to God. There's no differentiation. For those who say that the Holy Spirit is some like junior God on internship, you've got it wrong. The Holy Spirit power that we're talking about as we look at the lives of those changed by the Holy Spirit, when you lie to God about your worship, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what men think. You're trying to deceive God. And we're cautioned from doing this. Deuteronomy 6.16 tells us clearly, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not question God. You shall not put God to the test. Well, why would you put God to the test? Because ultimately, we don't believe that God can be trusted. When we challenge the goodness of God, I have to ask myself a question. Every time I challenge the goodness of God, when has God not been good to me? Whenever in my life have I not experienced the love? When does the sun not come up and the sun go down? When does the rain not come in? When does, when does God not provide rest and, and food? For the, my entire life I've had everything I've ever needed and I haven't earned any of it. At what point in time did God not prove faithful? And this is what Peter's asking Ananias and Sapphira. Why would you try to impress men when you knew you weren't impressing God? It's the imbalance. When we fear God, then you and I will fear living in any way that would attempt to deceive God or use God for our own image. Secondly, we're to fear disobedience. Uh, I did the best research I could in the time allotted to me, and I believe that I can say that one out of every four times the word fear of the Lord is mentioned in the scripture, it's mentioned with obedience. To know who God is means Let's just do a little quiz, see how you, how you do. You can feel free to answer out loud. When God says something is wrong, what should we believe it is? And when God says something is right, what should we believe it is? When God tells us not to do something, what should we do? And when God tells us to do something, what should we do? So basically, if you fear the Lord, you, you obey him. Well, you just made that easy. Let's go to the third one. We are to fear God because of our love for God. So that's how you put fear and love together. Because when you know who God is, 
and you fear trying to deceive him because he knows your heart. And you know who God is because you trust him so you wouldn't disobey him because you know he knows what's right and you know he knows what's good. That's how we find the love here. In Psalm 130, it says, but with you, speaking about God, but with God there is forgiveness, therefore God is feared. That we would fear losing his love. That we would fear rejecting him. That we would fear taking this ultimate, perfect, powerful, beautiful God and trading it in for some minor thing that's made by man that has no relevance at all. And when we're forgiven by the blood of Christ, then we fear living in any way that would make the blood of Christ on the cross meaningless to us or somebody else. You see, I know that it says that the blood of Christ continually cleanses me. But my love for God respects the blood that flowed. It, it honors that. Instead of simply saying, that blood gets me out of trouble, my love for God takes me back to the man who bled. To say that, why would I care? And this is a harsh statement. And the minute I'm saying it, my mind's saying don't, but I'm going to. It's a harsh statement in this room. But if none of you thought anything of me, and Jesus Christ loved me, what else do I need? To trade the love of God for the love of man or the image of man or the reputation of man is a trade you should never make. Am I right? And so the love of God motivates us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the questions we've had so far. Is your life all about the show or is it about the need to grow? Are, are we doing what we're doing for the kingdom so people will think well of us? Or are we doing it because we're called by God to expand his kingdom? The second question is, do you fear the Lord for who he is and for the promises of what he'll always be? And the last question is, is the justice of God compelling me to accomplish the mission of God? Does the justice of God compel me to accomplish the mission of God? Let me explain what I mean by that. This is a judgment passage. Luke recorded it in the book of Acts so you and I would understand God takes sin seriously. And you may say, well, he doesn't anymore. Oh, yeah, he does. Romans 1 says, there will be moments that God will delay his judgment and punishment to awaken us to repentance, paraphrasing Romans 1. But he won't hold that wrath and judgment forever. Our God is a judging God. We don't like that. We want to talk about there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, which is true. But how do you live because of that truth? Not just use that truth to protect you from living differently. So this is what we know about a good judge. Tell me if you would agree. A good judge will do what's right. All right. A couple of people responded. Just track with me. So we want a God who will do what's right, never do what's wrong, correct? We want a God who knows all the facts in front of him and can weigh those facts effectively, right? And we want a judge who has all the authority needed to punish evil and reward good. Good. And then you got one. His name's God. And ultimately in Jesus Christ, the final judge, all of those things are true. Would you agree with me that God is good, God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful? Then you have all the judgment you need and the proper judge to judge you. And this is what the Bible clearly says. God will judge sin and he holds us, listen carefully, he holds believers to a higher standard than unbelievers. You don't hear that preached very much. But he holds priests, the priesthood of all believers. We're held to a higher standard than those who aren't. That's why 
When Ananias and Sapphira walked into the church and wanted all the accolades of being spiritual and offered a lie before God, God could not tolerate it and they both dropped dead. Because God is holy and he will not tolerate sin no matter how much he loves us. So let me give you some examples. You might want to write these down because you shouldn't trust me. I've been me for 51 years. I don't trust me. So when we don't have time to process a text and I give you the text, I encourage you to write it down so you have something to read this week. Leviticus chapter 10. There are two priests named Nadab and Abihu. It says that they were told by God that they were to do certain things and the fire was holy and the altar was holy and the sacrifice was holy and Nadab and Abihu decided they were going to go their own way to priests, believers, if you will. And they went in and they offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord. And when they took the holiness of God and tried to use it for their own usage, they both were struck dead. Reminds you of Acts chapter 5, doesn't it? Both these priests dropped dead. They went in and pulled the priests out and buried their bodies. And Moses had to explain to Aaron that the reason was is that God would not be trifled with. The holy things of God are not for our glorification. The holy things of God are not for us to build our image, to build our reputation, to build our prominence. The holy things of God are to reflect on the goodness of God to his people who don't deserve it. And when Nadab and Abihu gave unauthorized fire before the Lord, God's question was, really? And both of them were immediately punished and both drop dead. And then you go to Joshua chapter 7. Moses is dead. And Joshua has brought them into the promised land. And when they go to Jericho, they defeat the great city. And then they go and they have this battle where they don't actually fight. They don't even have weapons. They march around the city for seven days. The walls fall down. And God said, leave everything. Don't take anything for yourselves. And then they go to this other battle against this little town called Ai. Not anywhere close to Jericho in size and prominence and army or anything. And they go in and 3,000 Israelites die in this battle. And Joshua falls before the Lord and he says, what happened? And you gave us victory in Jericho, and we, we lost 3,000 innocent men in Ai, what happened? And God said, ask the people, who took my things? God has a higher standard towards sin for those who are called in his name than he does for those who don't. And I want to show you throughout the Bible, God will not be patient forever when we choose to thumb our nose at holiness and choose to live in sin, figuring he loves me, he's merciful, I'm good. Nadab and Abihu, a man named Achan, who stole things and hid it under his tent. And when they went around and asked everybody, Achan finally confessed he had taken the holy things of God and he was struck dead, he and his family. Ananias and Sapphira. I could give you story after story, but time doesn't allow me to. So what are we talking about? The judgment of God should frighten us. But I want you to see that when the judgment of God is taken seriously, look at the work the Holy Spirit does. Now connect this. If you've, if you've tuned out, I'm almost done. If all you see today is, I better give enough money or I'm going to die. That'd be a good sermon title, but not biblical. <laughs> it means when you worship God, you better bring what you promise. Yourself. When we say we love the Lord, we fear the Lord, we honor the Lord, don't be bringing partial. Bring it all. 
Because in this moment, when sin in the church is dealt with, I want you to see in verses 12 through 14 of Acts chapter 5 what the Holy Spirit will do when we take sin seriously. Verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Verse 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Do you know what happens when the church takes sin seriously? God takes the church seriously. Do you know what happens when people repent and confess of their sins and are honest before the Lord? The Holy Spirit begins to grow the church and lives begin to change. So today is a day, whether you're a believer or you're just trying to figure out who this Jesus thing is all about. I don't get it all, but I'm intrigued by it. God's moving in your heart. Whether you've been moved by God or you're being moved by God currently, here's the thing I want to say to you. Today is a day where the church better take sin seriously. Today's a day when we stop lying to ourselves about nobody knows. Yes, nobody in this room knows what you're doing. God does. And nobody knew what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. But when they brought their false promise before the Lord, Peter said to them, why are you lying to God? And God said, you will not bring unholy things into my holy presence in my family. And God brought judgment. The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ went to that cross and he died on that cross so the judgment of God would land on him and none of it would land on us. Is that good? So the blood of Jesus Christ that bought the payment for our injustice and our lack of holiness, that blood on the cross is applied to every one of us. And it continually cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. So Jesus paid this price. And he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. The call of the message of Acts chapter 5 is God's people need to take their sins seriously because he does. And Jesus Christ shows us that the way he took it serious was by giving Jesus' life for ours. So I ask you today, would you trade your broken, sinful, quiet, hidden life and kill it today? Because the only way the redemption work is going to work in the church as we go into the community is when broken people fall before a loving, merciful God and confess their sins. So today we we need to be honest with God. He needs to get all of us. But nobody knows. Yeah, he does. And here's the good news. He loves you anyway. He's just waiting for each one of us to be honest enough to spend some time with him saying, God, I'm sorry that I thought I could hide this from you. I'm sorry I thought I could live in such a way as not to be honest. I'm sorry that I brought myself into worship and I offered you what I thought others wanted me to do instead of what you wanted me to do. If these terminology, if these concepts don't make sense to you, come see me in the foyer. I promise I won't be hard. I want you to understand confession begins the process by which the forgiveness of Jesus Christ will change your life and change the church. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.